0: Morning Bethel. So our scripture reading for this morning, it comes from Mark chapter 8 verses 27 to 38. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Mark chapter 8 starting in verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again.
1: So we're going to continue um, this morning in our series through 1 Corinthians. The series is titled, Cruciform Living. Yep. And we've talked about this already, but again, we are all shaped by what is important to us. By our values. So the question is, where do those values come from? Do they come from the prevailing values of our particular tribe, or do they come from God through His Word? I know, obviously, it's oftentimes a a mix, and that's why we need to keep bathing our minds in God's Word so that we see where our values are actually more shaped by the world than by the Word, so that we're not conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we need God's word to do that. And at the heart of His word is His Son. And at the heart of the work, the life of His Son, the work of His Son is the cross. The cross is the central and the ultimate revelation of the glory of God. And if you want to know what God is like, who He is, you look at Christ and you look at the cross of Christ the ultimate revelation of the character of God is found there. His justice and love and mercy and humility and on and on and on is most beautifully, fully revealed through Christ. And so the gospel is not just how we become Christians, it's also how we grow and change throughout our lives as Christians In the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, Lord Jesus, are being transformed into the same image, into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the next, like baby steps of growth becoming more like Jesus. So we need to behold His glory through the gospel, enabled by the Spirit so that we can become more like Jesus. So, um, we've got to center our lives on the cross, have our lives be shaped by the cross, cruciform living, okay? But the cross is not only countercultural out there, it's also counterintuitive sometimes to us. What are the values of the cross? Well, you must lose your life, like Tyler read a few minutes ago, if you're going to save it. You must die to live. The last shall be first. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Mark read that um, from 2 Corinthians 12. We become rich by impoverishing ourselves. Do not return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. These are some of the values of The cross, and that stuff is pretty counterintuitive. It's certainly countercultural. I mean, those aren't the values that characterize the world around us, right? They're probably not the values driving the company you work for. The advertising that you're bombarded by every day is not you know, driven by those values, right? So it's really easy to just imbibe and drink in and breathe in the values of this world and be conformed to that instead of conformed to Christ. So we need help, we need grace, we need truth, and we need models, we need examples of what it looks like. So who are you following? Do the people that you most highly esteem, do they embody the gospel of a crucified Messiah values? Or do they tend to be impressive and successful by worldly standards, by the standards of the particular tribe that you most identify with, that's most important to you. So 1 Corinthians 4, which is where we are this morning, in effect asks us this question, who are you following? And underneath it, why? And it has so much to say to both spiritual leaders, but also to everyone who's following, and ultimately we're all following, it's just a matter of who. So if we claim to follow Christ, we follow a crucified Lord. Spiritual leaders that are leading anyone else are called to die that others might live. And if we claim to follow Christ, again, Mark 8, we follow a crucified Lord and should be following cruciform leaders. okay? Leaders who are leading us by faith. Teaching and by example to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Daily dying to selfishness and pride so that we can live a life of Christ-like love. That is that cruciform living that the book of 1 Corinthians is aimed at producing in us. So, chapter 4 is what we're going to consider this morning. And it really closes off the first section of the book that began back in chapter 1. So flip back to chapter 1, verse 10, and let's just remind ourselves of where we've been. Paul describes the problem starting in 1.10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Sorry, if you're using the pew Bible here, you can find... 1 Corinthians 1 on page 952. So chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So again, these worldly values of impressiveness and maybe speaking ability or whatever it was shaped their evaluations of spiritual leaders and they're picking their favorite, dividing up into factions and allowing those preferences to define them rather than Jesus defining them. So Paul shows that pride is really at the root of these divisions and factions. And at the end of chapter 3, he says in verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Pastor Tyler preached on this last week. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. So in light of who all of us were prior to becoming Christians, In light of our sin, in light of the fact that the only reason we're any different is purely the grace and mercy of God, there is no room for boasting. The only boasting that we should be doing is boasting in the Lord, like it says at the end of chapter one, boasting in the cross of Christ that saved us. Okay, so let's look first at verses one to seven and see how the cross should shape our judgment. So that's the context. Let's see now, dive into chapter four. And see how the cross should shape us, uh, shape our judgment first and the heart that's beneath our judgments. So, verses 1 to 7 here is our first point, humility and judgment. This is how one should regard us, Paul speaking to Corinthians, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries. These mysteries have been revealed through Christ. Stewards of the mysteries of God. No need to boast in men, and again, leaders are in view here, so this would go for pastors or church planners, ministers of the word today. They are merely servants and stewards. Look back at at chapter 3, verse 5. Again, Tyler hit on this last week, but you'll see how this all hangs together and why these first four chapters um, are one chunk that hangs together. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. You see that? Just like he says in verse 1 of chapter 4 Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So there's no pecking order in the kingdom of God. We're all servants. My dad actually used to say there's only lateral movement in the the body of Christ. It's true. There's no hierarchy, no going up the ladder. If anything, we should go down the ladder following Jesus, right? Pursue greater humility. And so ministers of the Word are stewards of the Word, of the gospel that's been entrusted to them. So how crazy would it be if your mail carrier started, like, sifting through your mail and maybe sifting out some of the bad mail that you m- might not want to receive so that you would like him more. Like, that would be crazy, right? Like, just deliver the mail. Like, do your job. It's the same thing with people who minister the Word. We're just servants. We're just stewards. So the main responsibility of stewards and servants is to be trustworthy. Trustworthy trustworthy with what you're entrusted. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So remember, in their pride, these Corinthians not only took pride in their spiritual leader of choice, but they also judged and criticized, kind of downgraded other leaders. And Paul was actually among those being criticized. So look at verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing that i should be judged by you or any human court in fact i do not even judge myself i'm not aware of anything against myself but i am not thereby acquitted it is the lord who judges me so what does that mean well it doesn't mean that paul or any other church early church leader was above the law like can't judge me i'm an apostle <laughs> that's not the case You remember when Paul confronted Peter in Galatians 2 because he was acting hypocritically? The point is that Christian leaders are not out to win popularity contests. So the goal of preaching is not entertainment. Christian leaders are not chameleons seeking to please everyone. So if you're going to shepherd and lead people, you have to bring the mail no matter what it says. That's what Paul's saying. So these judgments that you're making based on preference is just missing the point. We just need to be faithful. So in responding this way and critiquing the Corinthians in this way, it doesn't mean that Paul is this like cranky prophet contrarian okay? that just loves rubbing people the wrong way. No. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul is a sweetheart. He is a worker for their joy, the joy of those he shepherds. He actually avoids all unnecessary offense. He tries to please everyone in everything he does. That's actually a quote from 1 Corinthians 10. <laughs> but he also knows that what fickle human beings think of him is not that big of a deal. And he even knows that he can be deceived. Do you see that in verse 4? He says, I don't, at the end of verse 3, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself. Like I think I'm being honest with the Lord and keeping short accounts and you know, repenting of my sin and not being a hypocrite here. But ultimately, the Lord judges me. Only God's opinion ultimately matters. Only God's judgment ultimately matters. He only cares what God thinks of him. I think we could stand to have that perspective. Those values shape us a little bit more, do you think? Like how desperately we need this perspective. And so Christian leaders must live and lead out this way. And Christians must follow this path of our crucified Savior who He despised the shame to please his Father, and to rescue and bless many, even though so many times he was misunderstood. He just kept plugging. So verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So I mean, just imagine that these Corinthians are writing the apostle, Paul, or at least they're tempted to. Some of them are writing the apostle Paul off based on superficial preferential values. Like, what a mistake! What a loss! Right? Be so foolish and ignorant. It's not their place to be the judge. So Paul is seeking to correct this, not in some you know um, petty, self-defensive sort of way. It's for their good. He doesn't want them to drift from Jesus, the one that he's following. So again, he orients them to the commendation that really matters. Paul is a God centered leader and he wants to shape God centered followers. The court of human opinion is not a big deal to Paul. So if the worldview, the values of the Bible are shaping us, then God is big. And people are small. We, again, if the gospel is shaping us, we know that we were justly under the condemnation of God. We deserved His judgment and we had no appeal in that courtroom. And yet... God so loved this world, us cosmic rebels, that he gave his son. Yes! So Jesus, this sinless, perfect substitute in our place, on the cross, took the just wrath of God for any and all who will repent of their rebellion and trust in him to save them. And when you trust in Jesus, you are justified like you're justified forever you are just and righteous in god's sight by faith and so as christians if the gospel is shaping us we live before or i'm sorry between there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus this is my beloved son or daughter with him with her i am well pleased Because we're in Christ, right? So we're justified, pardoned. There's no condemnation, but instead there is, we're right with God. That is true of us. We live between that and the final cosmic commendation. The only face that ultimately matters, whose smile ultimately matters, well done, good and faithful servant. That's where we live, between those two humongous moments. Those are huge. What your boss thinks of you, really small. What that girl thinks of you, what that guy thinks of you, whatever it is. Like fill in the blank, the person, really small. But do you see how we get this upside down and backwards? And whenever these two moments get really small, then people get really big and God gets really small and we start just doing all kinds of wonky things. So we need to be shaped by the gospel. The approval ratings of dust balls, like other human beings, is pretty petty and insignificant in comparison to those two moments. So Paul... Was living by God's approval and he was living for God's commendation. And he wanted the Corinthians to be shaped by those same values and not the values of the world. So, do you walk around insecure, constantly trying to prove yourself or defend yourself or protect or promote your image, your reputation? Are you so fearful of disapproval and rejection? Are you so craving of acceptance and praise? It's willing to compromise your integrity. We lie. All kinds of stuff comes from fear of man and people pleasing. For so many of us, people are big and God is small. We need God and his gospel and what he says about us to be big and huge. Huge. We need people and what they say about us to shrink down to size. So that was Paul's perspective. We need to adopt that. I need to adopt that. We need to be shaped by the gospel. So you see what happens in Paul because this is true. Like if, if you're familiar at all with his life and teachings, he's got this humble confidence on the basis of the cross of Christ. So He knows, despite his fighting against Jesus for a while and like killing Christians and imprisoning them, no condemnation. And he's also not undone by criticism. He's actually still loving the critics because he knows who he is. He's secure. So he doesn't have this need for people's approval ratings to be high. He's actually free to admonish them when needed, even if it rocks the boat for a time. He's not defensive or retaliating. He's not intimidating or cowering, on the other hand. So he's giving them strong gospel medicine that they need to get healthy and grow. Okay, so look, look at verse six. I've applied all these things to myself that Apollos for your benefit. For your benefit, brothers. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what, what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? <laughs> the Corinthians just thought they were really special, that they were like this elite group, you know? It's their superiority complex that leads them to judge leaders as ones. Let's see, we can be proud of that leader, he's worthy of following or not. But no, Paul's like, there's no spiritual caste system. Can't elevate preferences above fidelity to the cross of Christ, and so in our day and age, we can't allow our consumer culture to shape how we listen to the Word or how we relate to different Christian leaders or preachers. I remember D.A. Carson, one of my seminary professors. Um, I don't remember when he told this story, uh, but might have been while I was in seminary. He said, generally, the way people leave a service today in the West is different from the way people left the service hundred years ago. I think he was talking about Europe hundred years ago, wouldn't be the case today. Um, so today you, walk, you, you leave and, and people say, how'd you like the sermon? hundred years ago, he said, people walked out and said, how did you fare under the word? So in the West, especially in America, we have the luxury of critiquing and picking and choosing preachers like coffee or computer brands. Like we can just become almost like sermon connoisseurs or something, you know, like I'm of James McDonald. I mean, I like James McDonald or, you know, John Piper's too serious and he seems prideful to me. Or I'm of Tim Keller, da 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 Or I'm of Francis Chan and then and, and you're critical of all the materialistic frozen chosen types. Or I'm of David Platt, I'm really radical. Or I'm of Matt Chandler, I'm not critiquing any of these guys, I'm just saying this is how sometimes we talk. Or I'm of John MacArthur and I'm critical of all the second class expo- so-called expository preachers. Or I'm of Alistair Begg or whatever. It's like, time out, these guys are all on the same team. What are we doing? So we should make no big deal about the stylistic and even giftedness differences within the bounds of faithful gospel ministry. When we do, it it betrays our blindness to this luxury, right? Our blindness to our subtle self-importance that we assume the role of critic like some restaurant critic. If you're in Afghanistan or Nepal, you don't have the luxury of being a sermon connoisseur. Well, maybe you could, I guess, online, but When the spiritual battle is more obviously raging and your band of brothers is small, it's a little clearer that you can't afford the casualties of friendly fire. So into that inflated self-importance that was present in Corinth, and something like it can be present among us as well, Paul sticks this pointed question. And maybe if nothing else, like rings in your ears as you leave? I hope this question rings in your ears. Verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So maybe our issue is not aligning with one leader or criticizing, judging others, though it may be. But the pride underneath, I'm guessing that is our problem. I know it's my problem. So, 4 7 needs to land on us with this pride crushing weight. What do you have that you did not receive? You realize what that is? That is like a gospel smart bomb aimed at our pride and our self righteousness. So, just Lord, blow it all up this morning. Just. Really think about this question. What do you have that you did not receive? That, that's an earth-shaking question. I mean, do you see how much self-righteousness, self-importance, pride is at the heart of so much of what is wrong with us? One of the ways to see that is to see our sense of entitlement in our lives, okay? And I'm not just talking about, you know, middle-class teenagers here or college students whose work ethic is not what it should be, you know, those, like, videos that everybody laughs at except the millennials, you know, of whatever. Okay, I'm not picking on millennials. I'm saying I'm not just talking about those folks. I'm talking about all of us. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about people in whom the good old-fashioned Protestant work ethic is alive and kicking. So do you know that selfishness and stinginess with your money is prideful entitlement? I've worked hard for this. I earned this. Where did your ability to work hard come from? Where did the good health come from? Where did... Deuteronomy 8.17, beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. That has implications. Do you know this one's oh, these are these hurt, but this is a, a good hurt because we need to get kind of like humbled, because God gives grace to the humble, imposes the proud, so it's a good hurt. Do you know that grumbling and complaining is entitlement gone public? Because the, the subtext is, "I deserve better than this," right? How about self-pity? Anybody do any wallowing this week? Self-pity is the entitlement of wounded pride. Going public. And oh, how our entitlement crops up when we suffer. We are surprised when good Christians suffer. We don't understand why God would allow such faithful people to suffer. Where do you get that idea? Where do we get that idea? We kick against it ourselves, especially, here's the thing, we suffer, we kick against it ourselves because we think we've been obedient enough or good enough to deserve a little better treatment from God? You can see how, again, it goes back to these things. If the cross is small and the future commendation is small that nobody and nothing can take away from you, then the stuff in between can get really big that ought to be smaller. So what did I do to deserve this? Here I've been keeping my nose clean and reading my Bible and going to church and giving and serving and this is how you treat your children? That kind of sounds like that older brother in the prodigal son, doesn't it? Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What about our anger? What's underneath our anger? Oh man, this was like kicked up yesterday for me, like what I saw, the sludge in my soul yesterday. I want my will to be done. I think I deserve the world to revolve around me, and when it doesn't, wrath from this little God. So maybe this Corinthian problem is a little bit closer to home than we thought. So in their pride, they think they're a little extra special in the kingdom of God. It seems that they think they've even already begun to reign, R-E-I-G-N. So they don't seem to understand the fact that the cross comes before the crown. So point number two, verses eight to 13. Look at verse eight. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. If anybody ever asks you if there's any sarcasm in the Bible, um, this would be it. This is called holy sarcasm right here, folks. Already you've become rich. (laughs) Already you have all you want. Without us, you've become kings. I wish you were reigning because if you were, guess what? We'd be in the new heavens and the new earth and I wouldn't be getting beat up anymore. That's basically what Paul is saying. Were Adam and Eve created to rule and subdue? Yes. Will Christians one day reign with Christ? Yes. Listen to Revelation 5.9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. But in the meantime the cross comes before the crown it certainly does for paul look at verse 9 for i think that god has exhibited us apostles as last of all at the, this is at the end of the roman triumphal procession that's the picture here like men sentenced to death because we become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men so when a roman general won a battle they would you know kill most of the enemy soldiers but they preserve some big tough looking ones and they would drag them at the end of the parade like a Macy's Day parade. The generals dressed up like a god and if you're led in a triumphal procession, guess what? You're being led to your death. And you know, all the animals are ahead of you so you know animals do what they do in a parade so you're stomping through all that. This is not a pretty picture. So Paul is conquered by Jesus he's a slave of Christ and his suffering is actually because he's following Christ he's laying down his life that others might live we are fools for Christ's sake but you you're so wise Corinthians more holy sarcasm we are weak but you, you are so strong you're held in honor but we in disrepute to the present hour we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed to the present hour this wasn't just back you know when I first started To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless because we follow the one who said foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Proud of your leader? Follow me? So again, he's trying to shape their values. If you're a Christian, the cross comes before the crown. We follow a crucified Savior, right? Well, it has implications. Did you catch that in Mark 8 when Tyler read it? Who do people say that I am? Well, you're the Christ. Well, they say these things. Well, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Okay, let me make sure that I fill out the meaning of that, the purpose of my coming. I'm going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again. Peter says, he rebukes him. And Jesus has to rebuke him. Say, so you're setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. And then he says, if anybody's going to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So self denial and suffering is especially the calling of Christian leaders, but it's also the calling of everyone of Jesus' followers. Okay, so we just need to know where we are in the story the cross become, comes before the crown. So it means cruciform living, not comfortable kingly living this side of the return of Christ. So Paul is creatively saying you need to be shaped by the cross, not by the world. Okay? So even though this admonition is pointed, even ironic and sarcastic, it's not some angry rant. He's not venting. He is instructing and parenting and leading them creatively by his example. He's trying to get their attention and shake them awake. It's a creative way of saying, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to know that the cross comes before the crown. So he's saying, make sure you follow the right leaders. Who are you following Look at the next section, 14 to 17. Follow cruciform leaders who follow your crucified Lord. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. He led them to Jesus. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So back in those days... People didn't have kind of the, the choice when it came to vocation. A son usually did what his father did. So if your dad was a baker, you're going to be a baker. If your dad's a farmer, you're going to be a farmer. If your dad was a carpenter, you're going to be a carpenter. That's why when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, that they should be called sons of God, if you're a peacemaker, oh, God must be your dad. Because you, you do what he does. So he's saying, I became your father, therefore imitate me, become like me. This is not just for super apostle types, you know, like really spiritual people. This cross before the crown thing is for all of us, be imitators of me. That's why I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you not of my teachings, he says, but of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul knows how much of the Christian life is caught by example, so he wants them to imitate him. And he sends Timothy not merely to teach them, but to remind them of Paul's ways, his manner of life, this cruciform life. And then finally, the fourth point, meekness is not weakness in verses 18 to 21. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Guys, these are some that were really stirring up trouble. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, for the kingdom of God is not consistent in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So chapter four, we need Christ-like leaders. We need to be Christ-like people, cruciform living. We need to make sure our values are shaped by Christ and not by the surrounding culture. So, some in our culture lionize this kind of like unconditional positive regard, you know, this sentimental cheerleader approach where you just don't want to step on anybody's toes or ever challenge anything that they say. And then, on the other hand, some in our culture lionize the decisive power players who get stuff done and don't bother with coddling every wounded emotion. But Jesus is altogether different. He was in nobody's pocket. He was tough as nails. He called people out. He wove a whip of cords. He upended tables. And then he is tender and gentle and humble, not too busy for children, a bruised reed he didn't break, a smoldering wick he didn't snuff out. And Paul was the same way. He wasn't afraid to call sin sin and step on the Corinthians' toes but he wasn't on some power trip and he preferred to be toward them gentle like a father. So meekness is not weakness. It is mercy and patience restraining judgment because there's a longing for people to change and trust Jesus. So Paul has no interest in flexing his leadership muscles, having people kind of knuckle under because he followed Jesus who said, You know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. They lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So his meekness and gentleness toward them was not weakness. It was mercy and patience and love like Jesus, like a good father. So chapter 4, Bethel let's follow Jesus. Let's pray for our leaders to live cruciform Christ-like lives of love. Let's produce leaders who live cruciform Christ-like lives of love. Leadership is not something to be used for your own comfort. It's a responsibility born to bring comfort to others. So let's follow those cruciform leaders who follow our crucified Savior, okay? So as we approach the table now, um, as a family, as we gather around the table that Jesus set for us at the cross, let's look in and examine our hearts. Did that gospel smart bomb question go in and blow up did, it, did you see your pride and the inflated self-importance and self-righteousness? That's God's love and kindness to just blow that up, to expose it. So let's repent of that and let's feed humbly on the grace that's ours through Christ and be nourished by that grace and shaped more into the image of Christ by the cross, of Christ. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your counterintuitive, wonderful, amazing grace. Lord, please help us to see that we have nothing apart from you. That's certainly true by creation, but even more so by redemption. You chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in your presence. And then you give us Jesus and save us by your grace so that we can boast in Christ, boast in the cross, and glory that we can know who we are, that we can have no condemnation and justified, spoken over our life, and no one or no thing can take that away from us. And by your grace, you can keep us this life until the day when you will cosmically declare, well done, good and faithful servant. Please, Lord, would you make those things really big in our view and the opinion of people really small? Help us, lead us to repentance where we need to repent and help us to feed on the glorious grace of Christ so that we are shaped more into the image of Christ and we can love and lead and follow and serve and give like Jesus in his name, amen.